This is Shinji Kagawa, and you are listening to the Yellow Wall podcast. of the Yellow World Pod. As almost always, your host, Stefan Butzko, here on the panel together with Lars Polman. Hello, Lars. How are you doing? Hello, Stefan. I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing fine as well. We have to talk about Borussia Dortmund's second loss in the Champions League, but also some positive things to discuss with Dortmund remaining top of the table at least until 21st of October after recent events on match day seven and maybe we are also joined by Matthias Zuk somewhere down the road but uh, yeah that's still up in the air <laughs> so for now last we have to talk about Borussia Dortmund's 3-1 loss against Real Madrid and I have to say I think that was one of the easiest ones to predict this time um last I have not much recollection of the game since it's almost a whole week <laughs> since so um i guess we can talk about it in a bit more of a general sense um first of all how do you view Borussia Dortmund's chances to progress in the Champions League to the uh, round of 16 well i will say they have left themselves with very little room to maneuver but with the two fixtures they've played so far were among the more difficult ones for them in this group stage so i don't think it was out of the realm of possibility. I mean, obviously, it wasn't for them to come out of these two games without a point. Uh, I think uh, six points against Hapoel Nicosia were always required to make it out of this group uh, with Real even better than in usual in the group stage, I think, and Spurs also taking taking the competition a bit more seriously. I'm not entirely sure how... Uh, strong their chances are just because uh, Spurs to me look like a side that might be able to snatch a point from Real at home uh, unlike Dortmund and that might be the the difference but I wouldn't put it past uh, this Dortmund side either to uh, you know get a draw at, at Real who it, for all accounts might be through to the next stage already at that point I think that's the last match of the group stage isn't it so uh, I'm I'm not not certain that it's over by any means, but at the same time, as we talked about, uh, I think twice already, I wouldn't be too devastated if this was a year in the Champions League where Dortmund dropped down to the Europa League after the group stage. I think, as I said, with Real looking even better than in years past for the group stage at least, I mean, they can't look much better for the entire competition and Spurs taking it more seriously and just generally having a better squad than in, in years past, I think it wouldn't be the end of the world if Dortmund were to drop down to third and especially the way the things are going in the Bundesliga, maybe that would be a blessing in disguise. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, Real Madrid and Tottenham currently on 
six points each and Dortmund of course could theoretically level with Spurs uh, if they take all six points against Nicosia and Real Madrid uh, yeah win their two matches and then Dortmund could theoretically win against Spurs at home to get to nine and then snatch as you said a point against Real Madrid at the Bernabeu which is also not completely out of the picture I would say with uh, Real Madrid maybe then focusing on uh, getting some ground on or gaining some ground on Barcelona in the league so it's not completely out of the picture yet but uh, it's going to be an uphill task for sure and uh, yeah last what do you make of uh, Borussia Dortmund's game in general on the one hand uh, it was very risky to play with a high line and uh, Sidin Sidan said after the game that they looked at Dortmund's uh, yeah, where they play and they intended to keep the ball and basically try to await their pressing and then just waited for something to open up which eventually did. Um, was this a game Dortmund could have won with a different approach or would you say, I know it's a mean question, but would you say that uh, Real Madrid on the night were just too good for Dortmund? Anywho. Yeah, there was this uh, large debate uh, in parts of the German sports media landscape about Bosch's naivete or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think this was misplaced after this game. Uh That debate should have happened after the Spurs game, which was much more egregious in my opinion. Uh, I mean, the first goal they conceded against Real <laughs> didn't come uh, from a pressing situation or having too many men forward. It came against a low block for Dortmund's, uh, uh, in comparison to what Dortmund usually do. I mean, they just uh, lost the ball from a, from a throw in and were caught out with a lot of players around their own box so that's not a typical Dortmund goal to concede under Peter Bosch so I, I don't think that criticism makes much sense and then uh, they switched to a back three after about an hour or so uh, so again talking about Peter Bosch's stubbornness or however you want to call it doesn't really ring true in my opinion when he makes a fairly large tactical shift uh, halfway through the second half so Uh, in, in generally speaking, I think their performance was fine. Dortmund's was, I think, against most opponents who aren't Real Madrid, they might be able to win with the same level of performance. But it feels like for the first time in the group stage, with Real coming to the Westfalen Stadion, they were just close to their best. And when a team that can field a midfield with Kroos and Modric and Isco in a diamond and then has Ronaldo and Bale up front, when when that team's clicking, uh, not to mention they also are pretty good defensively nowadays with Ramos and Varane and Carvajal and Casemiro. I mean, the the only two players who aren't world-class in that team <laughs> are the left-back who wasn't, uh, who was Nacho, uh, replacement player and Kayla Navas whom I actually like but he's probably not one of the six or seven best goalkeepers in the world so if, if a team with nine world-class players puts that performance on the pitch I don't think it makes much sense to talk about the team that lost and rather people should praise Real for being that good on the day yeah it's it's interesting that Peter Bosch after the match said that his team didn't press well I actually thought 
Dortmund pressed as good as they always do. I just thought that Real Madrid uh, found better ways to evade that pressing than other teams have done so far. And uh, I mean, that's just pure quality, as you said, with Kroos, Modric, Isco, and and, uh, so many good players that can just take a touch, move their body and open up the field in an entirely different way. And of course, you will step too late then. Also, just because the players are quicker in general i think that holds true for almost the entire spanish division uh, primera division that there are a lot of technical players which are not so easy to press which is why a lot of teams take a different approach like for example atletico or so which i don't see dortmund doing either i don't think dortmund have the player material to play exactly like say uh, Jose Mourinho side or Atletico Madrid where they are just very aggressive uh, always a little bit on the back foot sometimes pressing high and uh, just just basically trying to stymie the opposition uh, you know Peter Bosch wants to play positive football but I think in general the criticism will remain in the Champions League that Dortmund are a little bit too open I think uh, that's that's just gonna be yeah I don't know so, something we will talk about a bit more often because I don't know. I think sometimes it's actually a bit naive to uh, play with such a risky high line, um, especially against Tottenham. That I don't. I don't think that was necessary. Where you maybe have have to have a little bit more of a con- conservative uh, conservative approach um, that could maybe help to just sit and snatch a point. You don't need a full open game. Sometimes it's better to just have a stale, boring one-one draw or something like that. Um, but uh, be that as it may, Dortmund now are with their backs against the wall. Um, I guess the biggest talking point coming out of this game happened rather early. I think in the 14th minute, it was Sergio Ramos uh, handling the ball with both his hands. Um, Lars, what's your opinion on that? Uh, the uh, FIFA referee who is working for Fox, I think his name is Dr. Joe Comins, but... I might be wrong. Um, he he said it would be a red card in the penalty. What's your opinion on that? Since the ball came from very close range, different one. Yeah, straight away I thought it's a clear penalty. I wasn't sure about the color of the card he would have to, uh, to be shown because I don't know whether the ball was going in. Uh, kind of felt like it was going parallel to the goal line, so maybe it wasn't preventing a clear goal which would in uh, the way i see it probably have been a booking but having seen it a couple of more times i'm actually inclined to say that it's not necessarily a stonewall penalty just because as you mentioned the ball came from quite a close distance and obviously it's not a natural way of using your hands as a defender in your own box but uh, i don't think uh, you can really blame a player for uh, not being ready for that ball to come uh, spilling from uh, Kaylor Navas to Ramos from like a yard distance. So I think that's basically like a 60-40 decision. So I guess uh, six out of 10 referees would probably give that as a penalty, but I can see the logic behind it not being one. And still, I would like for the Champions League to have uh, video assistant refereeing uh, big talking point in Germany still, but I think by and large it works pretty fine. Uh, at least when you're not in the stadium and you don't know what the hell they're doing. But 
watching the games on television, to me, the application of the VAR system, especially in the Bundesliga, has worked pretty fine so far. And I think uh, it would help uh, if that was implemented in the Champions League as well. And I think ultimately that will be the case. But uh, again, I'm not sure even with uh, VAR that this would have been a penalty, but it certainly looked uh, a bit weird. And as I said, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, six out of 10 or seven out of 10, maybe referees would have given a penalty there. But I don't think ultimately it would have changed too much about the game. Uh, because of the way Dortmund are playing, I don't think they they change the way they are playing because they won it up against Real. They're not suddenly letting the opponent have all of the ball and, and drop deep and defend with seven men around their box. So that's not what they're doing anyway. So I don't know how much of a change that uh, one goal would have would have made, as opposed to uh, the Spurs game where Aubameyang's goal was wrongfully uh, flagged away because that was such a big momentum swift, but. Uh, the same, I don't think, applies here for the Real match just because, as we talked about earlier, they they were so good on the day that, I don't know, uh, one goal would, wouldn't have made a huge difference, in my opinion. Yeah, well, it's always hard to say because often enough goals change games and maybe Dortmund would have then played with more confidence, changed their tactics a little bit. I don't know. It's I, it's completely hypothetical. Um, But... I don't know. To me, that's a penalty also because in my book, Sergio Ramos' hands actually moved a little bit to the ball, maybe just because he was, <laughs> he was so perplexed that his hands moved to the ball. But in this case, I really don't care, especially since he touched the ball with both arms. Uh, you know, to me, that's a penalty. But yeah, I can see also the logic behind the argument that you don't give it just because it was such a, such a short distance between Navas and, and Ramos there, but yeah, a little awkward nevertheless. Um, who did stick out for you in a positive and who maybe stuck out for you in a, a negative way in that game? Yeah, I think there's no question that Roman Burki was the best Dortmund player on the pitch, uh, but it's a bit lame to go with the goalkeeper, so I'll, I'll pick an outfielder as well, and I think Mario Götze did really well. Uh, obviously, his uh, energy levels dropped off a bit in the second half, and I think he was one of the subs uh, when uh, Bosch moved to a back three, if I'm not mistaken. So he only played like 60 minutes. Um, I might be completely wrong right now, because as you said earlier, <laughs> uh, I also have forgotten most of this game, uh, even though it's only been a week. Uh, but I think uh, Götze was fine. Uh, not the same can be said, I think, about Jeremy Tolian. Uh, I think... He struggled a bit with uh, Bale and Carvajal coming over his side. He made a few simple errors. Uh, he repeated against uh, Augsburg in his Bundesliga and uh, his positioning was off a bit. So, I mean, he's new to the team. He himself considers himself more of a right-sided player. He had to play on the left. So, uh, I think we can forgive him if... Uh, if we can say it like that, but uh, it certainly wasn't a great performance from him. But then again, there's always the caveat that it's against Real Madrid and they will make that uh, will make people look a bit silly from time to time. So it's it, there's no shame for such a young player in one of his first, if not his first, you know, I think it was his first uh, full Champions League game uh, to have. 
I think I read it was his full debut. I'm not entirely sure right now, but nevertheless, he's, he doesn't have much European experience at the club level and, and playing at home to Real Madrid and seeing those players come, come for you. I think, uh, I think those are circumstances that make a relatively poor performance, uh, more acceptable than the same would, I mean, if Pishtek had that level of a performance, I mean, Pishtek wasn't great, but. Uh, he wasn't as bad as Torian. There, there wouldn't be those mitigating circumstances. No, that's true. Yeah, Tor- Torian actually played the full ninety against Tottenham, and I thought he was doing pretty well there. But a uh, different game, I guess. Um, maybe, maybe one thing about Dortmund's pressing though is that what what I found is uh, Dortmund played with uh, Yamolenko, Philip, Shine, Castro, and, and Götze, and of course Aubameyang up front and. Uh, Hey, I don't think Aubameyang is in uh, his best form. He is uh, next to Roman Birki, the only player who has played every game for Dortmund. Birki has collected every minute so far. I think Aubameyang had one substitution, so he missed like five minutes of the entire season. So obviously that Aubameyang at some point drops a bit off and uh, feels his legs. I think that's very unsurprising and we could see that against Real Madrid and probably even more so against Augsburg. But... um. More in general, I thought that uh, maybe Dortmund being a step too slow also is uh, maybe connected to not having too much pace in midfield overall. I don't think that Maximilian Philipp is the quickest player. Uh, Yamolenko by far isn't. And uh, Gonzalo Castro, Nuri Schein and Mario Götze certainly also are not uh, ones to rival Aubameyang on a, on a full sprint. So, I mean... Shine and especially Castro also, I, I thought also had good games, uh, next to Götze. Especially in possession, Castro didn't make as many mistakes as I expected him to. So that was, uh, a match where Castro actually played well for once. And we know he's a streaky player, so he has his ups and downs. But against Real Madrid, he actually, uh, performed quite well. But I thought, uh, this in general was maybe a problem for, Dortmund that they lacked a little bit of pace up front so of course we could make the argument that maybe Christian Pulisic should have played but uh, I actually would say no he played so many games in before and that he also wasn't the fittest uh, the only argument I would make about Pulisic that he probably should have come in around the uh, 60th minute when it was uh, still 2-1 and Dortmund were within a chance I think there was a time when Dortmund were still not completely out of energy and we were finding space against Real Madrid because in the last 20 or 15 minutes, Real then got very defensive and uh, Dortmund looked extremely flat for the last 15 minutes or so. But I would say had Pulisic come out around the 60th minute for Yamolenko, there would have been a chance. But uh, to come back to my earlier argument, I think that uh, Dortmund just lacked general pace to uh be quick enough in, in their pressing to close down spaces quickly enough to uh, really hinder Real in uh, playing their possession game, which they did quite well. I mean, Dortmund still had a little bit more of possession in this match. Uh, what was it, like 56% or so? But uh, yeah, overall, uh, Real Madrid looked very comfortable in this match. Anything to add, Lars, or should we just move on to, to Augsburg? Yeah, just one point to make... Uh you talked about Dortmund's midfield lacking speed and maybe also, I would say, some aggression. But then again, 
when it's Kroos and Modric uh, and Isco, they just don't allow you to get into those situations where you can get close to them because the ball is off their feet too quickly. So uh, I I had predicted Kagawa would start to harass probably Modric uh, is probably the the one guy if you take him out maybe you have a chance uh, but uh, that didn't happen obviously so uh, i don't know i guess it's it, it comes back to the to our earlier discussion about maybe some naivete or stubbornness i don't know whether bosch should have uh, changed up his midfield plan a bit or maybe it wasn't uh, wrong because as you said they had 56% possession or whatever it was and it, I, I really do think that they played fairly well uh, considering their opponent and and as I said before if if they play the same uh, at home to Spurs for example I think they win that game without much difficulty so uh, ultimately I think the the entire discussion about this game should in my opinion focus more on how good Real were and not how poor Dortmund were because they they really weren't that poor. So I think there w too much has been made about this game, and uh, especially w now we're shifting over to the Augsburg match uh, and Peter Bosch. I think I can. <laughs> I actually I actually had a last point to make, but yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, Peter Bosch said after the Augsburg game that this was the the worst performance under him, and then many people pointed out that they. Uh, lost in midweek uh, to Real and said that there's that was a worse performance and I couldn't disagree more. But uh, your last point on Real? No, I actually just wanted to chime in because uh, I wrote for ESPN uh, predicting that Dortmund would uh, yeah lose to the sort of Real Madrid just because uh, I assumed that uh, Real Madrid would have Dortmund open like a like a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> Which to some extent happened because you can make the argument that Real Madrid could have made or could have scored a couple more goals in this one. However, um, we also have to um, basically say and, and state that Dortmund for very large stretches of the match had a very good chance of at least snatching a point in this one or maybe even winning uh, Dortmund had enough chances themselves uh, for example in the handball situation which we discussed I was actually a little bit disappointed that Yamoleko didn't find Aubameyang in that situation because that would have been a certain goal and there were a couple of other moments uh, I think where Yamoleko uh, had a diving header and just uh, the ball went basically between Aubameyang and the, and the goal I think he could have maybe scored himself there or or, yeah, a couple of other situations. So it wasn't completely that Dortmund were 100% outplayed over 90 minutes. Of course, they fell it short to Real Madrid, who were the better team on the night. And you are right, Lars, we should press Real Madrid, but it's not like Dortmund were completely toothless in this one. So, um, yeah, I guess we can shift over to Augsburg now. And uh, Matthias sadly still not with us. Lars, um, first things first, is this a game that a championship winning team wins uh time will tell i was uh, <laughs> i kind of expected you to retroactively ask me whether this was a trap game uh because that's what, kind of what, was, what, what you it? guys usually do now i i think uh, obviously this wasn't a great performance from Dortmund by any stretch of the imagination and i think augsburg deserved a point even though they didn't have 
many clear-cut scoring opportunities, especially... You know what I call bullshit? Augsburg didn't deserve shit in this. Just because they should have been down to eight men after five minutes. I'm sorry. Roughly, yeah. Yeah, roughly. But but honestly, I I don't I don't think for for that kicking performance, Augsburg should have deserved anything. But sorry, continue. That was just me being a little bit vexed. Yeah, I mean, on the run of play, I think they deserved uh, probably a, a, an equalizer, but they didn't have many scoring chances to actually get one, especially the last 25 or so minutes. Uh, I think Dortmund were really poor at the start of the second half and then got control back from, <laughs> uh, funnily enough, uh, some of those fouls uh, Augsburg committed constantly. Dortmund got a lot of free kicks, uh, took uh, some air out of the situation and time off the clock, and that helped them. Um, but but the the more important thing to me is that this was the seventh game uh, in 21 days, and even though Bosch has often rotated four or five players uh, from one game to the other, you still realize that it's quite a lot of strain on on uh, professional players. It's still early in the season, uh, playing every three days for uh, basically a month. That's really, really problematic. Uh, and Augsburg don't have that same strain, so it's not like uh, two two teams playing in Europe, meeting each other eye to eye. Augsburg play one game a week uh, and they are a very physical side as we had predicted uh, last week. So ultimately I, I'm, I'm willing to give Dortmund a pass on the poor performance and maybe uh, to come back to your question, maybe it is one of those games where you can look back and say we wouldn't be champions without this, but I still think, and I, I know we'll, we'll get to that uh at a later stage that the championship will not be decided by what Dortmund do, but by what some team from Southern Germany do. So, but certainly not the great performance, but again, I'm willing to give them a pass on it. And with those two goals, especially the second one from Kagawa, I think, uh, if people remember anything from this game, it shouldn't be the poor second half, but that, that great opening 20 minutes uh, or I, I don't remember when Kagawa scored exactly but the first half hour of this game was frantic and end-to-end -end stuff and Dortmund were better uh, than a pretty good Augsburg side even then and if not for all the kicking as you mentioned uh, this this would have been a really great game at least for the first 45 minutes yeah Kagawa scored the goal in the 23rd minute uh, just like his uh, number on the back of course um What I found interesting, and I think you you wrote it down nicely for me here in, in your match report, is uh, how many uh, players Bosch actually rotated. I mean, he brought in Mark Batra, Weigel, Dahoud, Kagawa, and Pulisic to replace Toprak, Schein, Castro, Götze, and, and Philipp. So that in itself, of course, speaks for the depth in Dortmund squad, and we mustn't forget the legs of Schürrle, Royce, and whatnot are still injured, and uh, of course, Rafael Guerrero, so... Uh, Yeah, it's it's good to to see that Dortmund have that depth, and uh, I think it would have been way worse without those changes. Um, I thought especially Kagawa did quite well in the in the first half, and um, Dahoud and Weigel also could Im impress. And it, to me, I thought the first half hour or so 
Dortmund looked very much in control and uh, if it wasn't for Augsburg's equalizer, you know, that impression would have uh, been ev even better to me. Um, yeah. I don't know what what you want to talk about first, Lars, but um, let's talk maybe about Mr. Yamolenko here um, because another great goal, I think, another assist. Um After seven match days, do you think uh, still that there are doubts over his time in Dortmund going forward, that he may have a drop-off or that players will uh, basically adjust a little bit more to him? Or do you think that uh, that Yamo Lenko generally will uh, perform as consistent as he has so far for Dortmund for the rest of his tenure? Uh, that's basically impossible to say because of the small <laughs> sample size. I mean, uh, Yamolenko has played 206 minutes in the Bundesliga and uh, I wasn't even 180 in the Champions League. So so what's your feeling? <laughs> um, so far, I think I've been wrong and, and most, if not all of us, were wrong because we were all at least a tad skeptical about his fit. I mean, I will say that we all called him a pretty good player if not a, a strong player but we, we questioned how he would fit in uh, with what Dortmund usually do but that was also when we didn't have this clear an idea of what Bosch actually wants them to do so uh, he's clearly a fit for uh, Peter Bosch's style which obviously doesn't ask too much tactically of his wingers which I think also uh, helps uh, Philip. I mean, it always helps these players when they don't have too much to do, when they have a clearly defined role and, and when they can focus on their strengths. And Yamolenko has strengths that are very valuable to the team. Uh, I think he's linking up well with Aubameyang, just as Philip is on the other side. So uh, the, the one thing I do wonder about is uh, whether or not he can be used in some other capacity than at the uh, than on the right wing because I think it's a bit too predictable at times. When when Philip and Pulisic play, uh, I th I feel like they are rotating their spots a bit more often. And Pulisic also likes to uh, roam in the half spaces more. And it feels like uh, to me at least with Yamolenko, he's really focused on that right wing and uh, has a relatively small caliber of uh, moves he uh, uses from that wing so as long as it works it's it's perfectly fine but as you said as with defenders getting more and more tape on him they they may be able to slow him down a little bit but then again i mean i'm i'm not going to say he's as good as iron robin is but i get i think people will get the idea that even though iron robin is doing the same thing for 10 years in the bundesliga still nobody's able to stop him so If you're more talented than the guy opposite of you, I guess you don't really need too many moves. And for all I care, Yamolenko can do the same thing over and over again as long as it works. Yeah, what I liked about him, and, and especially uh, when he scored the goal, was his presence of mind. I think that's that's something he has where he has a natural advantage over a lot of players, that he's just a very quick thinker. And uh, especially what I like when i play football myself <laughs> is uh it's a delicate touch because i see a lot of passes being needlessly overhit 
And we saw it very well for the assist that he played for Kagawa that he just uh, tipped the ball a little bit into Kagawa's path and it was just slow enough for, for Kagawa to, to execute the move that he clearly wanted to, to, yeah, play that way. And, uh, yeah, that was something that I really appreciated about Yamolenko. And I think in this game, um, with, uh, Daniel Oparo on the, uh, on Augsburg's right side, uh, he had a really great game against, against Christian Pulisic, but I think it was a little bit of, uh, of the game plan overall of, uh, Manuel Baum that they, meaning Augsburg focused on Pulisic and trying to take him out. And I thought that worked out quite well until Pulisic then switched to the right after Yamolenko got substituted. Um, and, uh, I think that's, that's very important that if, uh, Augsburg mark a player out of the game, like they tried with Pulisic, that the other guy on the other side who gets then a little bit more space, uh, does something with it and I thought uh, Yamolenko did quite well so kudos to him and uh, on the other hand uh, very interesting to see that an o opponent is uh, putting their main focus on Pulisic of uh, all the threats there are um, yeah I guess there are a couple of things more to talk about um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang didn't have his best game last uh, I would say it's uh, time to just cut him some slack. Um, <laughs> you know, I listened to, to Fox Sports commentators, of course, and they were ha having a big discussion whether Aubameyang is world-class or not. I mean, he has his 200th game for Dortmund, scored 133 goals, and uh, the name Robert Lewandowski is always mentioned when it comes to world-class players, and uh, when Aubameyang missed it one-on-one, against Marvin Hitz, that discussion immediately sprang to mind. But if we think back to the uh, cup final, I think it was uh, when Dortmund won 3-2 to move to the, uh, uh, to, yeah, to the cup, to this cup semi-final, to move to the final. Uh, Lewandowski also was free on Berkey and uh, fluffed his chance. I guess it's just something that happens. And uh, Aubameyang was ill midweek. So, um, yeah, he just... He just isn't in his best form at the moment, and to me that's a bit worrying, but I think at least for this match we can cut him some slack, and I'm pretty sure the goals will come again, and I'm pretty sure he will also score with the Panenka in the future again. Um, I don't know about you, Lars, but do you think that the penalty he took was arrogant? No, and I don't like uh, people making that assumption. I mean, it, it didn't look great, just because that's what happens when the goalkeeper snuffs you out, but uh, using that penalty strategy isn't a bad idea just because it takes out the possibility of hitting the post or missing the target altogether, which Aubameyang, Aubameyang has also done before again against uh, Eintracht Frankfurt in 2015, I believe. Um, I mean... Yeah, or against Darmstadt also. I think there are a couple of examples where Aubameyang has blown it penalty over the bar or so yeah i mean generally speaking i don't think he's a great penalty taker i think his record is subpar i mean uh, he scores less than 70 percent or just about 70 percent of his penalties which is a bit low uh, but then again with dembele gone who do you yeah would that's you prefer? the that's the problem with dembele not available and Royce uh, not available i mean 
who's going to take penalties for the team. Nuri Shahin certainly shouldn't because he uh, he used to miss all of them when Dortmund were crowned champions in the Bundesliga. And ultimately, it, it's a small price a price to pay over a season, one or two missed penalties. If it keeps your star striker happy and goals are the things that make star strikers happy, I can live with... Uh, the occasional missed penalty and, and and as I said, the using the Panenka usually works out pretty well. It, it's statistically speaking probably Aubameyang's best penalty because it was the first time he missed one of those. Uh, the one against uh, Benfica with Ederson in goal last season in Champions League was also down the middle, but it wasn't the Panenka. He uh, smashed it straight down, I think. So ultimately. Uh, it didn't hurt Dortmund in this game too much. As I said, Augsburg didn't have many chances in this, in, in, in that period of the game. So it's not like, uh, it sounded the charge for Augsburg to get that equalizer. So it, it will remain nothing but a footnote on the season. And I mean, for all talk, all the talk about Umar Young not being in form, I mean, he still scored against, uh, Real in the Champions League and he still leads the Bundesliga with eight goals. Uh, so. He can have an off day. I think he's proven time and time again that he's, despite being quite adventurous off the field, if we can call it that, he's uh, basically a model professional most of the time anyway. Uh, if he's not out for birthday parties in uh, Milan a day before a Champions League match, but I think that all, that's the, that's the complete package we, you get with Aubameyang. And I think we talked about it last week. That's what makes him so good. So, and that's what makes uh, Michael Zorg, Dortmund sporting director, say, "I love that player." So, if if Susi talks fine with Aubameyang, uh, so should everybody else. Yeah, it's really interesting that Dortmund uh, still managed to produce enough goals to win the game, even if Aubameyang hasn't stinker for has a stinker for his standards. Um, I guess. If there are a couple more talking points, is uh, maybe first of all the the VAR call. I think it, it was a good one with a tuck on Pischek. Um I can get, however, how this is a little bit unnerving for the people in the stadium who have no idea how uh, how and why this is happening, and it took quite long because the referee himself took another look. Um, but yeah, I'm totally fine with it. But I would argue that the DFL and the Bundesliga should think a little bit more about making this whole ordeal a little bit more transparent by, I don't know, putting it on the video screens or... No, no, having no. That, 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 that can't happen. I mean, the, the stadium can't see it and then half of the stadium thinks it's a penalty and the referee doesn't give <laughs> one. I mean, that's they should just, in my opinion, just make an announcement. What is he looking at? You yeah, can, or that. You, can, you can just say the the stadium announcer, or, or maybe it should be someone who's neutral because in a heated situation, <laughs> I don't think. Yeah, Nob just Nob imagine Nobby Nob Dickel yeah. saying that Bayern Munich have a penalty reviewed. <laughs> yeah, that, that's. Uh, I mean, just have someone there tell the stadium uh, why there's a stoppage. I don't know. Marco Fritz is currently looking at a possible uh, incident uh, in Augsburg's box. I mean, just tell them what is happening. I mean, it must be incredibly frustrating. And people who have been in, in stadia where VAR has been used in the Bundesliga have talked about this at length, how nobody knows what's going on. There's just a stoppage in play. Everybody's looking at themselves. Maybe some people have their smartphones out to check. But from my experience, the 
uh, wireless in most Stadia is pretty spotty, so it doesn't really work. So just just tell them what's going on, and and ultimately, when people look at the situations in whichever highlight show they prefer, they will see that so far, I think all but one or two of the VAR calls have been fairly blatant. And I mean, the foul on Pishek by uh, Yachul Kuhl, it was blatant. And I mean, the, the the thing that isn't talked about enough, in my opinion, so far, is how some of these calls are missed in the first place, because like that was fairly obvious and the referee looked in that general vicinity so he should be able to spot that fall without needing VAR help uh, two minutes later but I think all in all that's just uh, early kinks need to be worked out but I think pretty much everybody who's working in football agrees that this is a necessary step uh, and I think in two or three years we won't be talking about VAR the same way we are now Yeah, but but, but uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, if we want to talk about talking points, maybe we should give uh, one Shinji Kagawa at least a little love for his goal because we only mentioned it once. Yeah, I mean that was just perfectly executed. That uh, I don't know his body angles were all in a correct way to uh, yeah touch the ball just briefly enough to to chip it over Marvin Hitz and right in the back of the net and I think he did that before in the Revere Derby against Schalke and uh, yeah that's just an audacious finisher to me I think so far of all the goals we've seen Dortmund have scored a lot of great goals so far be it Nuri Schein for example with a stunning uh, drop kick as we say in Germany uh, but I think this is uh, for me the top of the list right now I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I thought it was one of the prettiest goals Dortmund have scored in a very long time, and they score a lot of pretty goals. Yeah, he did score that a similar volley last season uh, against Schalke, but I thought it was a an even better one. Just I thought it was more pretty. <laughs> I, I can't really describe uh, why it was different, but the way, as you said, his. He kind of contorted his body to have the perfect angle, and then he fell away after the shot a bit. It, it was a was an unnatural, but beautiful shooting motion. So, uh, certainly, in my opinion, the early front runner for goal of the season. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's such a unique te technique to to get the ball um up to to that angle and then drop right in behind the goalkeeper into the net. I. I don't remember who it was, but there was another team this match day who scored a similar goal, but it was a header with the ball being in the air. I I just can't recall against uh, who, who 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 the scorer was, but uh, in, in that instance, the ball, of course, is already in the air and it's a whole different angle, but trying to, to have this... Uh, This arch on the ball when you lift it from the ground, it's just, it's just breathtaking. So yeah, kudos to Shinji Kagawa for, for that great goal. And, uh, <laughs> it was, it was funny. Uh, the, uh, dear Krampe of Ruhrnachrichten once wrote a little article about that times are getting tough for Shinji Kagawa and just the next game, I think he started and, and played significantly well. And I, I, I think uh, with all the many games and rotations, Shinji uh, Kagawa is just fine. And of course, uh, dear Krampe admitted to that himself with a little laugh afterwards. But uh, yeah, that's just sometimes how it, how it goes for you. But uh, 
yeah, it's it's good to see that uh, there are so many different players on so many different weekends and mid midweek fixtures that that perform right now, and I think that's uh, really the backbone of Dortmund's success so far this season. Um, Lars, also interesting to me is uh, that for the final fifteen minutes or so, or was it now final ten minutes actually? Uh, Kagawa was of course replaced by Uma Toprak and, uh, Bosch, uh, yeah, basically put in three center backs to deal with the many lumps that were going back and forth in that game. Um, to me, that was a very, very clever substitution. What do you, what did you make of it? I wouldn't call bringing in an extra center back particularly clever. <laughs> it's like bringing on ne- another striker when you're chasing in the game. Uh, it's that is actually, true, actually, but it's actually one of the the most common substitutions. But uh, it's not it's so common. One. It's not not so common for Peter Bosch to do that, I guess. Uh, so uh, just like moving to a back three against Real halfway through the second half, maybe this was an admission of uh, maybe practicality over uh, style or substance over style. He just wanted to see it home, and I guess. Uh, with the way Topak has been playing, I I would still argue that he should be starting with Batra and uh, not coming on uh, for the the final search of the opponent. But uh, not nonetheless, it was certainly a, a welcome help. But uh, as I said a few times now, I, Augsburg didn't really produce anything uh, anyway in that stage of the games. They they lumped yeah, but all these I, I balls think that's forward. actually down to to. Having Toprak on the field as well. I, I no, think but, that but they didn't. They, they didn't do squad before he came on either. So it didn't really feel like. Uh, I, I never got the feeling that now's the time Augsburg will score, even uh, when uh, stoppage time was uh, five minutes suddenly and not the, or six minutes <laughs> and not and not five as uh, were called for largely down to the VAR system. Uh, I mean, it never felt to me like Augsburg would score, but. I mean, if you want to call that uh, a merit of Umatopax, then so be it. Yeah, I, I, I thought. I mean, especially Socrates in the last ten or fifteen minutes just had so many, so many tackles where he just threw himself in. I think for Socrates, just, just that is maybe just a perfect game where he can just uh, be as physical as he likes, um, and uh, yeah, maybe not the not the best tackles in the, in the sense of of timing and uh, in the sense of uh, basically having a good interception or having you know basically a good follow up afterwards however i i still thought it was important uh, to close out these yeah situations where augsburg try to get the ball forward somehow and of course augsburg are a little bit toothless and i would make the argument that a lot of different teams would have heard Dortmund on on this day but uh yeah it's a 2-1 win in the end and not completely undeserved uh and yeah riding out the game can also instill confidence and uh I think Socrates himself it was after the match talked about how this was a very important win and it's interesting how Peter Bush says this was a this was the worst performance but other entities of the club then then basically praising the outcome and uh, of course Bosch did the same but it, it's just interesting that that some players perceive it and Socrates said that's uh, different or in, in recent years Dortmund would have drawn or lost this game something you would agree I certainly do 
uh, again, that's impossible to say. Uh, I <laughs> certainly they've they've saw they 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 saw out uh, games under Tuchel from time to time, and uh, they lost from leading positions from time to time. So uh, I would agree at least with the notion that a better team individually than Augsburg would probably have gotten that second goal or maybe even the third one after that because I think some players of Dortmund's really looked a bit out of the game uh, for a while in the second half and a team with more individual attacking quality presumably would have done more damage but ultimately uh, as we started the Augsburg segment I think uh, this is the kind of game where you can look back and and be proud of your team no matter how the performance was perceived because ultimately such a game will happen to most teams if not all of them in the Bundesliga at some point this season and knowing that you came away with the three points regardless is a pretty good feeling definitely last question um, and I don't know if, if that's an easy one to answer or not but I had a feeling again I maybe should just sit down and, and take a closer look on uh, the, the the match and uh basically a couple of different matches but sometimes I get the feeling if Dortmund are being overrun like they were or losing control in the game which yeah in, in essence it was that they failed to dominate Augsburg with possession play and basically had to resort to a little bit more of a last ditch approach where they uh, lumped the ball away and whatnot um, though to my question Lars um, do you sometimes think that in those instances It's maybe better to take Julian Weigel off the field because he has less of a positive impact than he usually has when Dortmund are in control and then bring maybe someone on like Nuri Schein who is maybe also not as easily bullied and uh, perhaps can provide a bit more structure or do you think that's a stupid idiot question to ask? Uh, let me ask you, Stefan, did you watch the Tottenham game and Harry Kane uh, bullying Nuri Schein? I did, yes. <laughs> But that's a, also a different situation because yeah, Tottenham, but, but of course, Nuri are individually is, stronger. Nuri Shahin isn't a better defender than Julian Weigel and he certainly doesn't provide more structure uh, in his short passing and Dortmund are a team that ultimately like to play the ball short uh, if they can, so uh, I don't really I don't really uh, subscribe to that idea no <laughs> well I, I think overall it also has to do more with other players being out of position than with Julian Weigel per se but it's something I picked up some somewhere else and I uh, thought it was an interesting point to discuss um, so I guess we can move on from the Augsburg match Dortmund of course are still on top of the table by uh, five points now courtesy of Hertha Berlin, who wrestled back from a 2-0 deficit to overcome Bayern Munich. And of course, courtesy of Freiburg, who also came back from behind to beat Hoffenheim, who clearly looked very tired from their European adventures. Um, Lars, you already said earlier in the show that uh, whether Dortmund will win the championship or not is more down to the team in the south. And I guess uh, the last part of this show we can focus a little bit on what Bayern Munich are doing right now because um, 
they let go of Carlo Ancelotti and things are not all well over there uh, right now. If we saw Bayern play against Hertha, that looked pretty abject at, at times. Uh, very uh, yeah, unusual for them to lose possession the way they did, to have as little control as they did in, in, in the game against Hertha. And what's striking me the most overall this season is how Bayern failed to win possession back right after they lose it. Their Gegenpressing is more or less non-existent and thus they are very open at the back. And uh, yeah, they concede a lot of goals. Dortmund so far in the Bundesliga have two goals that they have conceded a record, which of course in some way flatters them. But uh, I still think uh, Dortmund are defensively more sound than Bayern right now. And I think to me that's always the biggest indicator Uh, whether or not a team is doing well in the league and Bayern of course already have conceded seven goals so Lars who do you think will replace Ancelotti or Belize Agnol now in the long term and do you think that Bayern over the course of the season will get back to their best as they did in let's say the last season where they comfortably won the league with 15 points ahead of everyone else or do you think that uh, this will be a very tight affair between Bayern and Dortmund until match day 34. I don't know about that last part. I don't know about match day 34, but I certainly, I mean, we can already say that it's not going to be like last year when they had uh, 15 points more than Dortmund and uh, than Leipzig, not Dortmund. Um, and, the, and the season was basically over in, in February or at least for the championship part, uh, just because they already are five points behind. They don't have a head coach right now. So even though Dortmunds have enjoyed a fairly comfortable uh, early season schedule so far, which also explains uh, the two goals they've conceded. I mean, if you look at expected goals and uh, in extension expected uh, points, Dortmund are actually uh, two points off what, they should have because they didn't uh, beat Freiburg. So uh, those the, the 19 points Dortmund have were very much expected from them in terms of the opponents and the performances of the teams uh, on that given day. But still, uh, a team needs to do that, uh, needs to finish the job on the field. So, uh, but enough of Dortmund for for our little Bayern discussion on this podcast. I do wonder uh, about Tuchel obviously he's the main candidate in the media but uh, I'm not so sure F for one thing I don't know or I can't really see him working under Hasan Salihamidzic who's uh, a joke basically as a sporting director uh, a puppet of Uli Hoeneß's and not someone who works uh, on the same Uh, intellectual capacity as Tuchel does. So, I mean, if, if Bayern still had Matthias Sommer, uh, for example, Tuchel would feel much more at home, I think, than he does uh, or would with uh, Hasan Salihamidzic. Now, obviously, we know or can be fairly certain that Bayern are the dream job of Tuchel. So, if they come calling, he may not be able to uh, withstand that, that call, but I also think, on the other hand, that if Bayern want Julian Nagelsmann to be their long-term coach, I don't know that they, from a philosophical standpoint, should 
switch that just because right now they don't have anyone other than another joke in Willy Sagnol. So I'm I'm really torn, and I believe Bayern are too. I I could easily see there to being two or three camps within that uh, within that club at the moment. Uh, you also have to wage a short term with long term demands. So ultimately, I really do not know. I don't think they know for for a fact who's going to be their next head coach, even though I think Uli Hoeneß has claimed today that he already told uh, Pep Guardiola who he's going to be. But I I could easily see this drag on for a few more days and the the solution might actually be, in my opinion, at least someone coming in only for the rest of this season, knowing Bayern, they like to reappoint managers they have already had so i'm i'm pretty sure the the first call went to Jopinkis just just to see whether they can get him out of retirement but would i be shocked about louis van Gaal returning for a few months no i wouldn't <laughs> yeah it's actually interesting you know uh when they said that Gadiola is uh, very happy with uh the replacement for Ancelotti now and uh, candidates right now are Tuchel, Van Gaal and Luis Enrique who coached Barca recently and I have a hunch that Pep Guardiola would uh, say yes to all three of these options so this uh, statement exactly says nothing. Um, what I would say about Tuchel is that I think in the short term at least and I don't know if Bayern would just give him a short term contract For me, that's pretty hard to imagine that Tuchel would sign one until the end of the season. However, um, be that as it may, I think Tuchel would be the, the best candidate right now for Bayern to revamp that team because, you know, a lot of things that aren't going well for Bayern has to do with uh, the uh, positional play. I think there's a lot of uh, tactical potential that uh, has been barren since... Ancelotti and I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Tuchel could, uh, yeah, re re-establish that. I don't know in in what time frame, what period, but especially you know just going to a back three, for example, instead of a back four, I think would already help Bayern to some extent to uh, have have a better possession play and a little bit more control. And I think overall, Bayern, as horrible as they look at the moment, it's also not. Like they're far off winning all the games they are currently not winning. I still think that even in Hoffenheim they could have taken away something. And the same accounts for the match against Wolfsburg and of course Hertha Berlin, where it's really just uh, tiny things that made them drop points. Overall, of course, Bayern are not on their on their best. But I truly believe that Thomas Tuchel, with the way he thinks, and I I think we have a had a very good chance of, of uh, learning his idea of football. I think uh, since it's not too far off what Pep Guardiola is doing and uh, most players on the Bayern squad know fairly well how to play that sort of football, that uh, it wouldn't take too long to uh, yeah get back on that. Of course, Lars, it, it has to be pointed out that not all Bayern players are on the top of their game right now. And that is, of course, something which may also remain with Tuchel or any other coach at the helm that say uh, 
David Alaba or Mats Hummels, who I, I think has, has some, some shady matches, but also in, in attack, Robert Lewandowski isn't firing on all cylinders and so on and so forth. Like there are a lot of examples of players that are just not doing so well. Um, yeah, that this could remain. Um, what do you actually make of Franck Ribéry's injury now? Do you think this uh, is a cause for concern or do you, do you think that's a, it actually may be a chance for the likes of uh, James Rodriguez to actually step up in the team and, and give the new coach a bit of a rest when it comes to players being disgruntled of being on the bench? Well, first of all, I didn't see the Ribéry injury. I wasn't watching that game, so I I have... Yeah, but pretty bad. It's, uh, it's not an ACL as far as I know, so he may come back this season. It's an LCL. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Ribéry on his day is still a great player, but those days have become far and few between. Uh, it's not uh, the same as Robben, who still, even though he's not in the greatest run of forms at the moment, I understand, but uh, he's still very much a regular difference maker as opposed to Ribéry, who's more of a spot player at this point. Um Ultimately, I think Bayern have some structural weaknesses in their squad. Uh, I think uh, they didn't do a great job retooling the deeper parts of the roster. Uh, they started doing that now with uh, the two Hoffenheim players coming in, for example. Um, Serge Nabry coming in, even though he was loaned to Hoffenheim. You know, that, that, that back end of the roster, if you like, the positions 16 to 20 on the bench I think for Bayern aren't as great as they usually have been from time to time now obviously they have a lot of injury problems in that club have have had them for years just like Dortmund uh, but uh, I mean if Tuchel were to come in for example I think those concerns would be able to be brushed to the side he would probably as you said maybe go to a back three And then uh, Sebastian Rudi and Thiago Alcantara would become his Julian Weigel and Ilkay Gundogan, if you like. And we saw how devastating that combination was for Dortmund or how, how much control they had over games and how much they, they allowed uh, the creative playmakers to uh, wreak havoc. And I mean, the way Bayern are playing at the moment, it's all a bit predictable. There's no huge surprises in their game. They are going through the motions a bit. And if Lewandowski isn't scoring, they are in trouble in, in some of these games. But uh, that's something I don't think is uh, going to hurt them too much over the long run. And if we want to come back to how that all pertains to Dortmund, the fact that there are two head-to-head uh, -head matchups left... Uh, I think that works in Bayern's favor because uh, if Dortmund offer the same kind, uh, kind of spaces to Bayern uh, as they have offered to most of their opponents who are weak in the Bundesliga and who have made them suffer in the Champions League, I think Bayern still are too, far too good to not make use of those. So unless Dortmund change up the way they're playing at least a little bit in those direct matchups against Bayern, the five points advantage may 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 well become a uh, one point disadvantage if you like so even though it's it's all great and fine that Dortmund are so far ahead after only seven match dates I think it's 
gone far better than anyone would have dared hope for. I still think ultimately that Bayern are the the actually the the huge favorites to uh, become Bundesliga champions just because it most probably in my opinion the the games they've lost points in are the outliers already for their season and I could easily see them going on a on a great run regardless of the coach just because of the quality of the players so I wouldn't be surprised to see them win seven or eight games on the spin and then it it may all be look uh, much better for them and much worse for Dortmund who are only now going to start facing the more dangerous and better teams in the Bundesliga. Yeah, that's the problem, right? I mean, as a podcast host, I, of course, have to think a little bit about my line of questioning here. And, uh, of course, after seven match days and being five points ahead of the big rivals, it's intriguing to ask whether Dortmund are now truly contenders for the title, whether they're the favorites or whatnot. You know, those are questions that sort of have to be asked. But on the other hand, I feel very reluctant to ask that question just because knowing that The match against Leipzig next will be very tricky. I know Dortmund have the most players on international duty. And uh, as we saw in Freiburg, Dortmund usually do not do awfully well right after an international break. On top of that, they then go to Frankfurt, another tricky away game. And Frankfurt are very excellent at finding space in behind Dortmund as they already exercised in a cup final. So those are two games coming up where I could see a lot of problems for Dortmund and uh, if Dortmund start dropping points in the in October you know it, it can this this nice comfortable five point lead can be gone quite quickly and the season is just so long still that I don't know to me this question is, is still way too early to ask I would say Let's take another look after the Leipzig or the, or the Frankfurt match and, and then we can maybe start to carefully discuss whether Dortmund are actually contenders. For now, I would say they had a very, very good run and they can be very proud of what they've achieved. However, I still think that uh, uh, it's still a little too early to ask the big questions for now. I mean, I mean, if you want to have a crack at it, you can, but you more or less already said that you expect Bayern to still win the title and at, at this point even as poorly as Bayern are doing it in, in some games I still see them in the long term ahead especially with a new and better coach coming in that uh, brings more to the table of what this Bayern team needs so I assume that uh, Bayern soon will start clicking a little bit better and uh, between Dortmund and Bayern right now are not a, a lot of differences per se so um yeah as as hopeful i would like to be i don't think that uh, dortmund will uh, be as comfortable on top of the table however we of course here at the yellow World pod have been wrong many times before and we could of course be wrong again and yeah that's the great part of uh, everyone else who is a dortmund fan that they can just hope and dream and cheer but I personally, I, I'm not one who, who does that. So, um, yeah, last, I don't know about you, but, uh, it's going to be at least very interesting. I think that's the, the, the bigger takeaway here that, uh, we at least will have a bit a little, that we at least will have a little bit of fun for the next month or two. 
or three. Yeah, I, I mean, I could see this going until April or so, but ultimately, uh, I, I, I just can't see it right now just yet because I think there's also a very good chance that Dortmund are going to slump a bit here and there. And I could see with Dortmund's playing style and their, um, reliance on Aubameyang in the goal scoring department, even though there's just won a game where he was terrible by, uh, all measures, basically. Uh, I could see them go on a, you know, two or three game slump where they maybe only take one or two points and that at an inopportune time can, can make all the difference. As I said, with the two head to head matchups still, still to come. So, uh, it's going to be interesting, but, uh, I think it would be wise for people to not expect more than just an interesting title race. But I also, I don't really think that anyone's actually expecting Dortmund to win the title just based on uh, a start to the season that was very successful for them. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, last season when Dortmund, at, at some point, they, they started dropping off quite rapidly. Uh, I think it started with an away match in Leverkusen and then there were a couple of games where they didn't really perform well. I, I don't exactly can point my finger to when exactly it was, but uh, that was in the uh, in the, in the first half of the season, right? Yeah, Dortmund had a terrible autumn uh, 2016. And autumn's just starting in Germany. Uh, leaves are falling, days are getting colder, nights are getting longer. So uh, obviously they are coming from a better starting position, but uh, October is going to be a big month for them, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, I think, will be the defining moment. And of course, we will talk about that also in a bit more detail next week, where we will be back with the preview for the Leipzig match. And of course, also take a look ahead to Apuel Nicosia, which will be an interesting one, I guess, and more or less already defines whether Dortmund will be in the Champions League come 2018. And, uh, That's not all. We actually want to have, uh, as we usually do in, during the international break, have a bit more of a listener Q&A. So if you guys out there want to send us your questions via Twitter or Facebook, please do. You can find us, of course, at Yellow Wallpot on Twitter and the same on, on Facebook. So go ahead and ask. As always, completely dumb questions will be ignored. <laughs> So, yeah, I guess uh, we can knock it on the head now. Lars, it was a pleasure talking to you, as always. I'm a bit sad that Matthias could not make it, although... Although our our listeners will probably never know because you'll be editing this out, I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anywho, uh, Lars, it was good talking to you, and I guess we will be back next week. But before, where can people find all your great work and reach out to you. Uh, they can, I mean, I don't really want them all to contact me necessarily, but uh, if they so choose, my <laughs> DMs on Twitter are still open, even though I'm wrestling with myself, whether that's actually a good idea or not, but uh, they can. Sometimes yeah, it really is But sometimes <laughs> it is. I, I've had some interesting discussions on there too, so it's not, it's all uh, not black and white, I guess. But uh, my Twitter handle is at Lars Polman. Lars, 
thanks for joining me. And uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can do that at Twitter as well. At Stefan Butzko is my Twitter handle if you want to reach all of us again at Yellow Wallpot. And uh, yeah, if you want to find our written content, you go to yellowwallpot.com where you can also find all the channels to subscribe to the podcast, which is iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud and or your very own podcatcher where you, I mean, we have our iTunes or our RSS feed available there as well. And if you want to help us financially, that's very much appreciated too. You can do that on patreon.com slash the yellow wall. And that would be all for now until next week. Goodbye.